as we come to the Word tonight, we return to the book of Ruth, to Ruth chapter 1, if you want to, and if you would, please turn there in your Bibles. You know, as, as you turn, it's, uh, it's just an incredible consideration for us. All that we see in, in this little book, <laughs> you know, just, just a, a few verses overall, uh, four short chapters, and yet just a powerhouse of information. And, and a point of encouragement for us, I, I love to go back and to go through the Old Testament. I love to see the way it relates to the New Testament and all that God was doing in the hearts and minds of those individuals as he was proclaiming his truth and using them in the future. And this is, this is such an unlikely set of circumstances. You know, I, I often reflect upon my own salvation. I think, you know, Lord, I, I can't imagine what in the world you ever would have seen in me. For the despicable sinner that I was, why were you ever so gracious? And not that there were horrific sin issues that were going on in Naomi and her family's life, although it appears from our introduction and all that occurred to Elimelech and to Chilion and Malon, Naomi's sons, that there was some. But it is the rest of the story, isn't it? It's the details behind that that become foundational and that become a continuation in the lineage that would lead to our Lord that absolutely blow me away. You never would pick something like that. If I'm going to go out and, and I'm going to try and detail the lineage of the Lord, I'm going to go find the most godly and the most holy people, all of those that seem to fit with all that I would know of the Scripture, and these are not them. And isn't that wonderful? Because isn't that an encouragement to us? Because we is not them either. But God is nonetheless working in all these circumstances. And tonight we're going to see, as we've gone through our text and we've been looking at this faithfulness in commitment. Uh, our, our, our first verses really showed the faithlessness of man. And now we see this faithfulness in commitment. And tonight we're really going to see the maximum expression of that faithfulness. And it is glorious to behold Ruth chapter 1. I'm going to read our whole section just to kind of set our context as it's been a few weeks since we've been here. So I'm going to start at verse 6 and I'm going to go all the way through verse 18, which is, Lord willing, what we'll get covered this evening. So follow along with me if you would. Ruth 1 and verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband, even if I said I have hope. 
If I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Faithfulness in commitment. The section of our text from verses 6 to 18 has four facets of commitment that we've been looking at. Four facets, four facets of commitment that confirm for us God's calling and God's faithfulness in each of our lives. The book started again with the unfaithfulness of man. We mentioned that, Elimelech leaving Israel due to the famine. Bethlehem, the land of his heritage, and an important aspect with regards to that heritage, for we'll see that that will play out all the way through the Old Testament and into the initial genealogy where we know that by the census of Quirinius, as we're told in Luke 2, and he ordered the governor then, that it was because of that lineage which dates back to this time, to Elimelech, that they needed to go to Bethlehem, Joseph and Mary, to be counted. So there is a vital impact of this location. Elimelech dies and his sons marry Moabite women, which also is something they ought not have done, for this is contrary to the law. And the two sons then also die. Basically, this introduction is nothing but a failure due to unfaithfulness. And then we see this change in verse 6 to faithfulness, and hence our title, Faithfulness in Commitment. The first commitment we saw was the commitment to go in verses 6 and 7. And Naomi committed to return to Israel. She showed her faithfulness. Elimelech never should have left. Whether or not that was punishment for him and his death and his sons, we're not specifically told, although it seems unlikely that there would be that kind of catastrophe in these young men so quickly. But Naomi, nonetheless, was faithful. She knew her place. She knew she needed to be home. She needed to be with her people. She needed to be in the land of her God. And so she decided that she would go. And she is going because of this good news. This good news of Yahweh's blessing. And not just a blessing, but a blessing back upon the nation of Israel. That he had provided food. Again, a wonderful play on words there. And, and we touched on that quickly. Because Bethlehem, Beit Lehem, is the house of food. And now food is being returned to the house of Israel. So a, a really beautiful picture there in the Hebrew. 
So Naomi committed to go, and her daughter-in-laws, in like fashion, said, we too will go with you. We love you, you are our kin, and we will go as well. So after the commitment to go, we saw the commitment to stay in verses 8 to 14. The commitment for the daughter-in-laws to stay in Moab. And this is where we spent much time discussing the goings back and forth between Naomi and her daughters-in-law. Kind of like that tennis game. And not just about staying or going, but also this back and forth between sternness and blessing. Kindness and tough love. She's very stern as she commands them to go and return in verse 6, or excuse me, verse 8. Verse, uh, th- that word return became a key thematic point being used six times in that section. So that stern command of Naomi, but immediately followed in verse 8 by her tender blessing, thanking them for the kindness to her and to the dead, to her dead sons, which they had showed. And then she continues with that kindness in verse 9. May the Lord give you rest. Rest indicative of her desire for salvation. And we talked about many points about in that. And there were some wonderful nuances about how she is praying for them that they would have salvation. That she would find blessings uh, in, those, in those homes. And then her main argument lies in her inability to bear children. Her argument to them for the commitment to stay was because that she couldn't bear children. Verse 11 asks, if sons were in her womb, would you wait for them to be your husbands? And then verse 12 says, I'm too old to have a husband and really I don't want one. And and even if I had sons, the daughters would be too old to marry those sons once they grew up. So why would you stay? Well, really, in my mind, that's not the strangeness of the argument. That's all very logical, but why would she make that the point of the argument? Why would she not bring up the other dangers that we had talked about? The fact that it would be crazy for two beautiful young single women to accompany a widow in a caravan of people they knew nothing about on a 600-mile trek back to Israel. That's foolishness. To leave people in their country where they know the culture and to go to a people they have no idea of, that's foolishness. To go back to a people that not only don't they know the culture, but they're their sworn enemies. The Moabites, that is, the sworn enemies of the Jews. Why would you do that? But none of those are the argument. Rather, it is this issue of not bearing children. The ladies just want to go with their mother-in-law because they love her. But what's happening here is a picture is being painted for us. And we can't miss it. And, and, and the author makes certain that we don't miss it because he repeats it in every one of those verses. Components of it, of it in verses 11, verses 12, and verses 13. And the picture that's being painted is that of the kinsman redeemer. This is going to become a critical theme, a dominant theme in the book of Ruth. But it's a dominant theme throughout the rest of the Old Testament. What's being set before us in this short book with these few verses and chapters is one of the major topics that it's going to carry all the way through the Old Testament. Because this becomes the picture of the one who would step in and would adopt and would take over in the place of a failed man. 
Can we think of a picture of a failed man in the Old Testament? Oh, yeah. It's Adam. And the one who would step in would be Christ. And this is the picture that's being painted for us. Of course, the Lord has intricately and beautifully designed all of this from before the foundations of the earth. And we see this aspect of kinsman redeemer brought forward to us in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 25 in verses 5 and 6. Let me read those verses for you. You might make note of them and go look at them later. Deuteronomy 25 beginning in verse 5. And it says, When brothers live together and one of them dies, and so has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. That phrase, husband's brother, is the same phrase, kinsman, redeemer. They're translated in the same way in the Hebrew. Verse 6. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. The point is to maintain family lineage. It is that continuation, and we understand that. We know all of the detail that came about in the book of Joshua, do we not? Joshua conquers, and as he conquers, the the book is split right in half. The first 12 chapters talk about the conquest of of Joshua, and the last 12 chapters talk about the division of the land of Israel. And each by their own house, very specific in the detail of the geography as to which area of land each of the 12 tribes of Israel had and within each of those tribes there were partitions for each family everyone had their own ground and there was to be a continuation of that should one of the family members within a family who had received a tract of land die rather than that land be moved and sold and there become an iniquity and an infighting regarding the heritage of that there was a plan that the Lord laid out here in Deuteronomy 25.5 so that there would be a continuation of the lineage. But it is so much more than that. It is a picture for us of the continuation of lineage in this book and the continuation of the lineage that would recur throughout the Old Testament up to the time of the Lord. It's interesting as well that the New Testament addresses this concept. In Matthew chapter 22... In verses 23 to 33, there's a whole section about the kinsman redeemer. We might not recognize it as such, but that's exactly what it is. In Matthew 22, 23, we have the Sadducees coming before Christ to question him and to try to trip him up here at his last teaching when he is on the Mount of Olives about the woman whose husband passes away and has the seven brothers. And we remember the story well. And she marries each of the seven. And at the end of the story, the Sadducees say, they, they say, So, teacher, in heaven, which one will have the woman? And, of course, the Lord rebukes them for their lack of understanding. And he says in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Just kind of, you are a bonehead. 
You don't get it. You don't get the whole eternal life thing. You don't get the whole point of the kinsman redeemer. Although this was the major thing. And isn't it interesting that this is the last question that is brought to Jesus. The Sadducees will no longer question him after this. They understand that he has rebuked them with those very few slight words. In such a way as to say, you are never going to get it. You are delirious and this is the main thing. This is the main delineation. This is why I have come and you don't get it. And they understood this rebuke and they would not ask him another question. The text tells us in verse 33 of Matthew 22. It's a very important point here and it is foreshadowing all that's coming in the chapters ahead. So there was this commitment to go in verses 6 to 7. There was a commitment to stay in verses 8 to 14. And now we have a commitment to love in verses 14 to 18. A commitment to love. Look again at the middle of verse 14. Actually, near the end. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah gives what will be a goodbye kiss that will be the last time the two of them will ever see one another for a number of reasons, and we'll see those in a moment. But Ruth clung to her. That word cling, don't miss it, underline it, because that is the same word from Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall cling or cleave to his wife. This is not simply a, oh, okay, we're going to hold hands and go back to Israel. No, this is, she is making herself one with Naomi. I am part of you. I am not simply going to be with you. I am part of you. I am holding fast. I am becoming a part of you and your family. Orpah has departed in verse 15, and we see there, then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. She's gone back to her gods. The word gods there is the word Elohim. Now we're very familiar with that word. It occurs in Genesis 1-1, the first book of the Bible, and repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. It is a plural verb referencing God, usually the plural of majesty, we will often call that, because it speaks of the triune nature of the Godhead. But here is the only time that we see it appear in this particular form, and it is the only time that this word occurs by itself in the book of Ruth. Because here it is significant, the word Elohim is not referring to God Almighty, but rather it is referring to the gods of her people. All of the rest of the times we see God referenced, it is, has Yahweh either exclusively, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in our Bibles, or it has the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Here, the return to the God shows us that Orpah's departure is not just a departure from Ruth and Naomi, but it is a departure from the Lord a departure from the personal covenant-keeping God. Her return is to the gods of Moab, to the god Chemosh, to the god who was one, as Dr. MacArthur tells us, to which the people of Moab sacrificed their children. Naomi tells Ruth, you go too. 
Actually, Naomi commands Ruth. She says literally, return after her. Return to your people. Return to your gods. Now the seventh time this key thematic word, return, has come into our text in this short section. Two aspects of this command to return to her gods. The first is that she did not want, Naomi did not want Ruth taking back the gods of her people to Israel. There was a protectionist mentality because this would be a curse upon the whole land. This is showing some of the piety of Naomi. We've seen that in her desire to return. Her immediate understanding, no matter what had happened, that she needed to be back with her people. She was an Israelitess. And she needed to be back with those of her people. And she knew that she could not bring with her one who would carry in the gods of the foreign land. This was idolatrous. Exodus 23 and 4 says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. If Ruth were to bring in idols... Both of those commands would be violated. She would be worshiping other gods and she would be bringing those idols which she had created into the land. So that was the first aspect. The second aspect of her telling her not to come is the nature of the Moabite gods that she wanted to have nothing to do with. The Baals, the fertility rituals, the immorality. We know some of these atrocities because of what we read of Paul in Corinth. But these pale compared to Molech and Chemosh, these great gods, these, the horrific atrocities that men would commit that are beyond our conception. Where they would take their children and they would build a fire under these carved stone idols approximately the size of this pulpit. And they would have outstretched arms that would be heated to red hot. And they would set their children on those arms. Can we even conceive of such a thing? I would say no. And then I consider the slaughter of almost 60 million children in our country since 1973. We are just more cleanly in the horrors we commit against our God. But how about the God in our lives? What what do we worship? We can point fingers at them, but where are we? We all worship something. We are created to worship. Maybe even some of us here tonight who are putting more emphasis on other areas of our life than on God. Maybe we're focusing on work more than God. Maybe we're focusing on retirement more than God on our financial security. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these. These are not bad in and of themselves. But beloved, anything that takes a place higher than our worship of God in our lives is by definition an idol. Maybe it's our recreation. Maybe it's our home. Anything that has more of our focus in our lives is an idol and it is an abomination to the Lord. It is something that he despises and it's something that shows our true allegiance. How do we spend each day? You know, I've often challenged people in the churches that I've been blessed to minister to take a sheet of paper, write down a whole week, And write down how much time you spend with the Lord. 
and how much time you spend in the other activities of your life. And do those activities of your life, do they have a part and parcel element of the Lord? Is there a time where you yet are able to stay connected through prayer? How much do we read God's Word? God commands this of our children. And how about entertainment? Our culture is entertainment-saturated. TVs, movies, cell phones. You know, I, I saw just today, and, and so thankful for one of our natu- national church leaders, well-respected, who put a tweet out, and he said, I am so thankful for Facebook and Twitter. Because on the last day, Facebook and Twitter have removed any excuse that we are too busy when we are judged before the throne of God. Hit me like a brick between the forehead, between the eyes. It's like, isn't that true? If I have enough time to be looking at social media, do I have enough time to spend with the Lord? I'm not saying all of these are evil. In fact, many of them, as they're done as unto the Lord, are commendable to Him. Work is commanded, but it is to be done as to the Lord, honoring Him, done with integrity above reproach. Because this is our walk, and people are watching. God is watching. But what do we watch? Would you watch the things that you put onto your television in front of your children or grandchildren? Beloved, we need to assess ourselves. God calls us to this. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. He commands us. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? How are we doing? Now is the time to assess ourselves. Now is the time to look at what we're watching and what we're doing. To redeem the time, for it is indeed precious. What if yesterday were the last day? What if that horrific storm cell that blew right over the east end of Dauphin Island had brought a tornado down there, and Tom and I were no longer with you, as opposed to going into Pensacola, and some there are not with us. The time is short, beloved. We must assess where we are. And here Naomi is calling Ruth to assess herself. Naomi is telling Ruth to return home, and doing so because she loves her. And this is part of our commitment to love in this third point. Then in the first half of verse 16 is Ruth's response. And it shows Ruth's commitment of love. Naomi commanded Ruth to return. And what is her response? This is so important for young people. I wish we had all of our Awana kids and all of our high school kids and everybody in here. Because her response is vital. Here is a young woman being given a command. She is commanded to return home. It's not, an, it's not an indicative verb. You know, it would be a good idea. It's a you should go home. Go home! And it's not coming from one of her parents, but a relative and a relative only through marriage. But Ruth also is faithful. Look at her response. What does she do? Does she reject it? Does she say No. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm a big girl. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going with you. Of course not. Look at her response at the beginning of verse 16. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you 
or turn back from following you? Is that not the perfect way to respond? Do not force me to abandon you. Do not force me to return from following after you. The terms that she is using here for force are those of violence, those of war, abandonment. These reference severe pressure. They show extreme force of will. And she gently says, please do not make me do this. Please do not force me into this. Ruth is faithful. She doesn't refuse the command to return. Rather, she pleads to remain. What a wonderful attitude. What a submissive heart. Young people have to learn this. this is, there is a right and wrong way to respond to a command. You do have a faithful way to respond to a command. One that is opposite to the request. But it is not by using another command. No. It is by a proper request. May I please do otherwise. In the same way, Ruth was faithful. And the second phase continues Ruth's commitment to love. And this is perhaps one of the most wonderful phrases in the Old Testament. There's, there's a level of submission here that is incredible. The amount of respect is unknown in our modern world. But, beloved, this is Ruth's heart. This is Ruth's desire. In verses 16 to 17, there are five pairs of terms. And note carefully each pair because there is a successive level of increase of her commitment to love on each step that we go up the ladder in these points. Look at them with me. Where you go, I will go. I will follow you, it's saying. This is the beginning of the faithfulness. This is one of my favorite verses. It's on this ring that I wear in Hebrew. For where you go, I will go. My wife bought this for me the year after I came to know the Lord. (laughs) And she said, this is your real wedding ring. This is to your real bride, the one who has died for you. Such an incredible allegiance that she is showing here. The next pair indicates the next level. Where you lodge, I will lodge. First, I will follow you. And after I have followed, I will spend the night. You know, it's, it's getting to be a ways back there, but I remember the first time that I spent the night as a young child outside of the home. I was at these friends' house, these two brothers. One was a year older, one was a year younger. We used to hang out in a group with them and bicycle ride. June 1st was uh, banana split day up in Ketchum, 10 miles away. And we'd all jump on our bicycles and ride. And for 10 cents, we got banana splits. Eat about six of them until you're ready to throw up. And then call my mom and say, bring the pickup and come bring us back. And I went the night before to stay at these guys' house, and I will never forget it. I had the most horrible dream, and I woke up in the middle of the night just screaming. So much for the good first impression on the neighborhood boys. Well, here is this traumatic event of her and the level of trust that's being shown as she puts herself with Naomi to dwell with her, to be with these people in a place that she was unfamiliar with. When you are sleeping, you are in your most vulnerable time. And she says, where you lodge, I will lodge. And then she goes on to the third level. Your people will be my people. Now Ruth is committing to live her life among a foreign people, among a people of a different culture, away from her family, 
Think of our young people that go overseas in the military and they're serving. Think of those that go into the missions field. Completely leaving the comforts of our society and civilization of our family. We ought to be crying out to the Lord on behalf of our missionaries and particularly when it comes to those special family times that we all celebrate. Thanksgiving, Christmas. Because They are celebrating, but they are celebrating around a culture that has no idea about what they're doing. So this is yet a third level. The first level, where you go, I will go. The second, where you lodge, I will lodge. The third, your people will be my people. And the fourth level, your God will be my God. This is where faith really moves to another level. Through all the three previous levels, there's a return possible. It might not be easy or pretty, but there is a possible return, but not any longer. You are abandoning all that you thought was previously controlling your life. It's no different for us than it is for those who believe in other religions. They are as committed as we are. Unfortunately, they are deluded in their commitment, but they are nonetheless committed And she is here acknowledging that she is choosing to believe in a God of which she did not previously know. This is very much like the maturity of our children today. They must come to a point where they leave their parents' faith. The God whom their parents serve now has to become their God. They must commit to Him. They must trust in Him. Their their faith must become their own. This is a huge step. She's saying, I'm all in with Yahweh Elohim. Orpah may have left back to the gods that I know. I am going after your God. And then we get to the fifth level and certainly the ultimate level. Where you die, I will die. Ruth is saying, I I not only believe in your God, but I trust that he will deliver me. He will take me with you. And I will be with you and your God. I will be with you in life and I will be with you in death. It also is so so appropriate for our young people. They begin to become aware of their mortality. And oftentimes we as parents or grandparents want to smooth that over. We want to make that an easier transition. You know, don't be worried about that. It's okay if they're worried about that. In fact, it's not only okay, it may be the Lord's leading. Because they need to have that understanding. They need to realize that death is a scary situation. Even for those of us that know the Lord. The end of life is a scary transition. We believe and we trust, but that less step, that less breath, it's a little daunting. If you have not wrestled with a life-threatening disease, then you don't know this as keenly as those who have. God has placed every person under this understanding. This is His design. And of course, we know that the timing is completely His. But there is this component where this is the ultimate level of trust. And the rest of the verse confirms this point where she says, Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. 
And then she prayed a curse on herself if she was disobedient. May God do worse to me if I am faithless. She is saying, may he do more to me than death if I do not honor this commitment. My level of commitment to you is not only to go where you to go, to lodge with your lodge, that your people will be my people, that your God will be my God, but that I will die with you. And should any of these not happen, should I be faithless in any of these, may God do worse to me than death. Many would say there is nothing worse than death. But we know that the distinction between the death of a believer and the death of an unbeliever is a very radical difference. And there is something much, much, much worse than death for those who do not know the Lord. It has been so well said that for the believer, this life on earth is the closest to hell we will ever get. And for the unbeliever, this life on earth is as close to heaven as they will ever get. Ought this not to motivate us if this is as good as it gets? So she prays this curse on her. She wants this to happen if she becomes faithless. Of course, it reminds me so much of Paul's cry in Romans chapter 9 where he wishes himself to be accursed in Romans 9, 3 if it could but bring salvation to his brethren. And then in verse 18, we see another act of the commitment of love. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Naomi returns the honor to her daughter-in-law. She doesn't browbeat her for her decision. She accepts it and she moves on. She pleads and then she gives deference. We've left much in our discussion of the faithfulness and commitment as we get down through verse 22. But we already see these important distinctions, don't we? We see the facets of, the com of commitment which we must emulate. Facets of commitment as well which are not good. A very special aspect of this commitment which is love. And, and a very unique kind of love. We have much more that we'll see on this incredible facet as we return next week. But until that time, the lesson for us is we must assess our commitment. To speak with you about assessing your commitment, I mean, we ought to, I ought to have you all up here on the stage because it is definitely preaching to the choir. I'm so thankful that you're here. I'm so thankful for your faithfulness in being here on a Wednesday night. But nonetheless... Beloved, there is yet greater commitment for each and every one of us, myself included. What levels is the Lord seeking to take us to that we have as yet refused to submit, to bend the knee to? We have to assess that because ultimately what matters is our commitment to the Lord and His church. And so let me just ask you, how are you doing in this area? How can you yet grow what areas of the components that we've talked about in our Sunday morning messages? What areas of discipleship? What areas of evangelism can you yet grow in? Our church is 
so needy, so wonderful, so fulfilled, so rich in love, and yet so needy. So where are you in filling this need? I pray that if you find your commitment to God and His Word lacking, that you'll strive to grow yet more in them and that you'll resolve to serve Him. Because Ruth is a picture for us. And it is a picture that is going to continue to blossom and unfold all the way to the time of the Lord. Well, now you are that picture. And your commitment to Christ has opportunity to continue to blossom and expand all the way to the time of the Lord. Are you ready to see him face to face? Are you ready to know him as he is? And when you do, and he asks you about your time, can you respond, yes, I have done all that I can to honor and serve you. Let's grow in that, friends.